Thank you, children. We look forward to you leading us this evening in understanding a little more of the story of Jonah. Let me ask, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 26 on page 653, as far as the Pew Bible is concerned, page 653. Jeremiah chapter 26, two weeks ago, as we continue to trace the unfolding of God's covenant purposes throughout the Old Testament and into the New, we considered the demise of the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes that broke away from the house of David. Now this morning, we come to a moment in time about 120 years after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. We come to a moment in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah, that kingdom over which the house of David continued to rule. And we have here a prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord speaking through him to both the king and the people. Let me read for you, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 26 of Jeremiah. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and every one turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, which I sent to you urgently, though you have not listened then I will make this house like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. Shiloh was originally the, the place in which you could have found the Ark of the Covenant, but during the time, some 300 years, 200 years, 300 years earlier during the time of, of Samuel, uh, Samuel's judgeship of Israel, it was from Shiloh that the Ark of the Covenant was taken, that Ark of the Covenant that was then stolen by the Philistine nation. If you won't listen to me, I'll make this house, this temple, like Shiloh, and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord." When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord, took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. And then the priest and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. Does that catch your attention? 
the same accusation that will be eventually brought against Jesus, the same accusation that was eventually brought against the first of the church's martyrs, against Stephen. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words that you have heard. Now therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster He has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I'm in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord. How do they draw that, con- how do they suddenly come to that conclusion? I believe the answer is in verses 17 through 19, which I would argue chronologically precede verse 16. Now, let me just say something, because whenever I say something like that, somebody's going to be sitting there saying, this guy's trying to twist and distort the Scripture. I'm not. Read the book of Jeremiah to clearly understand that the Old Testament writers of history do not write history the way we write history. It 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 is not necessarily chronological. That is not the way they write. I know you want to say, well, they should write that way. But that's not the way they wrote history. And I believe the reason for the judgment of verse 16 is because of what took place in verses 17 through 19. Because there we're told that certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, that would have been about a hundred years earlier, prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooden height. Now, did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all, uh, of Judah, and all Judah put, put him, put Micah to death? Did He, that is, did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord, and did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we, we're about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand how such history has anything to do with us whatsoever. Lord, open, open our hearts, and may we be receptive to your truth. What is spoken here, if it be thy truth, may it be a good soil planted in good seed that bears a bountiful harvest. And if what is spoken here is contrary to your word, then may it fall to the ground, become nothing, and not cause your people confusion. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I believe that the St. Louis Cardinals are the greatest franchise in the history of Major League Baseball. And I can make a good case for that. And I have, I have a witness over here. I can make a good case for that. I mean, after all, 
They've won 19 National League pennants, and they've won 11 World Series. So that's my argument. That argument is an example of cherry picking. I'm not talking about harvesting fruit. I'm talking about a logical fallacy called cherry picking. Cherry picking is when you pick the, the, the facts that you want to emphasize, either ignoring the other facts or perhaps knowing that you're ignorant of the other facts, but you don't really care because you've got a point that you want to make, and so you cherry pick the evidence you want to support your position. For example, uh, I argue for the St. Louis Cardinals knowing full well that both the Giants and Dodgers have won more National League pennants and that the New York <coughs> have, <laughs> have won more than twice as many World Series championships. But I don't care about the facts because I'm cherry picking. I'm going to cherry pick the facts I want to pick. And I mean, if you're a Chicago Cub fan, you have no facts. <laughs> so. Now, I, sorry about that, girl. Tom, sorry. It's true. Um, now, what am I trying to tell you? I'm trying to tell you that while cherry picking can sometimes just be a bunch of innocent fun, it can also at times be far from innocent. I mean, you can be foolishly guilty of, of cherry picking when, when you know only half the story, but you assume that you know the whole story when you don't know the whole story, and you're not really all that interested about what the other half of the story might be because you like the story that you know. And so you draw your conclusions based on that part of the story that you know without any real concern about the other half of the story. I mean, if there's one thing I've learned over the years is there's always two sides of a story. There's always two sides of a story. And sometimes when we, we assert so positively our conclusions and our ideas only knowing half the story, in fact, what we're doing is gossiping. Or, even worse, we may be simply choosing to lie. I mean, you may be deliberately cherry-picking in an attempt to make your point, knowing sometimes you can cherry pick deliberately knowing that there are other facts that could dispute your claim, such as that of mine about the cardinals. I mean, politicians, economists, environmentalists, they're, they're often guilty, not always, but they are often guilty of cherry picking the facts to promote their favorite candidate, their, their, their particular fiscal policies, or their, their, their favorite environmental programs. But setting all those things aside, of even greater concern are those who cherry-pick the Scriptures, those who take the Word of God and they quote particular verses, ripping them out of the context in which those verses are written 
but they, they find verses that seemingly support their opinions, their ideas, their particular, looking for a particular defense for a particular lifestyle, while they just either ignorantly or deliberately ignore the other verses of Scripture. Let me give you an example, a biblical example. When Satan tempts Jesus to jump from the pinnacle of the temple, what does he do? He quotes Scripture. Satan quotes Scripture. Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He says to Jesus, look, you know you can jump because God has promised he'll send his angels to bear you up so you won't suffer serious injury. That's the word of God, Jesus, jump. Of course, what Satan doesn't quote is the next verse. The next verse of Psalm 91. The next verse in which... Uh, which depicts ahead of time Jesus trampling Satan beneath his feet. Satan found it convenient not to quote the next verse. He cherry-picked. He cherry-picked the Scriptures. And we all can at times do that to, to defend our own perturbation you know, personal beliefs, you know, to defend our own particular theological opinions, to, to, uh, uh, to defend, uh, to validate certain lifestyles, and, and some, of course, cherry-pick throughout the Scripture to try and prove the Bible is self-contradictory and, and is unworthy of our trust and of our attention. I'm going to tell you what, if you cherry-pick the Scriptures, you can prove anything. I didn't say the Scriptures taught everything or anything you want the Scriptures to teach, but if you cherry-pick enough verses and string them together, you can prove almost anything you want to prove. And Jeremiah, why am I harping on this? Because that's what's going on in Jeremiah 26. That's what's going on. Jeremiah 26. The city of Judah, the land, the land of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, they're filled with cherry pickers. The, the cherries they're picking are the words of false prophets and self, or a false priest and self-proclaimed prophets who are assuring them that because Jerusalem is the Lord's chosen city and the temple is found within its walls, that Yahweh will deliver them from their enemies no matter what. Now, who doesn't want to believe that? That's the message that they were holding on to. I mean, either ignorantly or deliberately, they, they choose to ignore the Lord's Word in Deut Deuteronomy chapter 28, where, where the Lord tells them, where the Lord told their ancestors, if in faith you keep my commandments, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. I am the Lord your God. In faith, you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. That's pretty clear, but not popular. You know, not a real, you know, it's not a warm and, you know, it's just not a warm and cuddly verse, you know, but it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The cherry-picking messages of the so-called priests and prophets 
Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 7, 8, you don't need to turn back there, but in Jeremiah 7, 8, he refers to their words as being deceptive. Words that deceive. The kind of words that maybe you want to hear. The kind of words that itching ears, Paul talks about. The itching ears, Paul talks about, that long to hear what they want to hear. And Jeremiah is saying, you, if that's what you want, that's what you got. Because you got false priests and prophets out there that are saying exactly what you want to hear. You are the Lord's people. This is his city. This is his temple. He will save and he will bless you with peace and with prosperity and with protection no matter what. That was the message of the false prophets, of the false priests. Nothing new under the sun. I mean, how often do we hear the gospel, the truth of the gospel distorted in such a way as to suggest that since we're saved by grace and not by works, how we live has nothing to do with whether or not we've truly been saved. That's an abominable lie that has nothing to do with the consistent teaching of the Word of God. Nothing new under the sun. But look here in Deuteronomy. Uh, look here in Jeremiah chapter 26. Now, the year is 609 B.C. Good King Josiah, good godly king, he's dead. He died at Megiddo in battle against the Pharaoh of Egypt. So it's a complex political and military situation. The, 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 uh, the big boy on the block of Syria is fading the new big boy on the block is the Babylonians. And so Pharaoh is worried about what's going to happen to Egypt, so he's marching north to join with whatever Assyrian armies are left to try and counteract the growing strength of Babylon. But to get up here to Assyria, he has to march through Judah. And Josiah decides he must stop him, seems to have been a foolish decision, perhaps a noble decision, but, but foolish. His army is overwhelmed. He dies. His son Jehoahaz comes to the throne. But now Egypt has control. I mean, Egypt having defeated Josiah in battle, Egypt now has control of Judah. And so Josiah's son, Josiah's son Jehoahaz comes to the throne. He reigns only three months because he's a little belligerent. So the Pharaoh deposes him and places and replaces him with a, a second son of Josiah, the very compliant and weak-willed Jehoiakim. And in the first year, you see here in Jeremiah 26, in the first year of Jehoiakim's reign, the Lord sends Jeremiah to speak to the people of Judah who have gathered in the temple, they've gathered in the temple to, to celebrate one of the feast days of Judah. The Lord, verse 2, the Lord instructs Jeremiah to speak to the people his word. Verse 3, it is a word that holds out hope that if they would listen and turn from their evil ways, the Lord will not judge them for their evil deeds. But, verses 4 through 6, the Lord warns them that if they will not listen and choose to live according to his law, if they will not heed the word of the Lord, 
If they, if they will not heed, look at, look at that. If, if they will not heed, look at verse 5. If they will not heed the word of the Lord that the many prophets that the Lord has urgently sent to them, and, and please understand this, the many prophets the Lord had urgently sent to them over hundreds of years, not for a week, not for a month, not for a year, not for five years, for hundreds of years. The prophets the Lord had urgently sent to them to call them to repentance. If they will not turn away from their wickedness, if they will not turn back to the Lord, the city will be accursed. Now, I really want to emphasize the Lord's persistence, and I really want to emphasize the hundreds of years that the Lord sent prophets to plead with them. And the Lord's merciful, He's patient. And in response to those prophets throughout those hundreds of years, there were brief moments of revival. But eventually the people would choose once more to listen to deceptive words, to words promising peace and prosperity and protection, no matter what. Because this is the city of the Lord. This is the temple. Jeremiah pictures the people at one point chanting, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Like magic words that will keep them safe. Jeremiah says to them, you know, if you will not turn back to the Lord, if you will ignore his continual warning over hundreds of years, then understand, as the prophets say repeatedly, understand your hope of peace is misplaced because there is no peace for who? For the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. I mean, how much, how much clearer can the Lord be? There is no peace. Attempt to deliberately ignore the, the word of the Lord and His commandments and to do your own thing and go your own way and live according to your own rules and so forth and so on, and you're relying upon the fact that somewhere back here, you know, I raised my hand in a meeting and said, okay, I confess that Jesus is Lord and He died on the cross to save me from my sins. Okay, glad that's taken care of. I'm in. And then the rest of your life unfolds and you go your own way, you do your own thing without any thought or concern for who Jesus is or for what Christ has said or for how God would have you to live. How much clearer can the Lord be? There is no peace for the wicked. It won't work. To whom do you listen? You listen to the Lord speaking to you as His Word is read and preached and taught? Or do you listen to the false priests and the self-proclaimed prophets of our day who will say what you want to hear, who, who will support whatever idea you want supported, who, who will speak deceptive words that will blind you to the ways of the Lord? And it, and it does just blind us. I mean, I challenge you. I challenge especially you, those of you who are younger 
and very much in those formative years, I challenge you, compare the lives of those who attempt to build upon the false foundation of deceptive words. Compare the outcome of their lives with those of whom you are confident, truly love the Lord, and eagerly strive in His strength to serve their Lord as they serve those around them in His name. Go ahead, make that comparison. Don't let Satan blind you to the evidence. Of course, the problem is, I know what the problem is. The problem is all these people over here who made this one-time confession, who still claim to be born again, and yet live like a demon out of hell. And you go, well, I don't live. What's a demon out of hell? A demon out of hell is one who ignores the Lord, goes his own way without any thought or consideration for who God is or for what God wants. If he knows anything about who God is or what God wants, he wants the opposite. So we cherry pick the gospel. I've said this many, many times. We, We turn it into a fire escape policy. If I can just check off the box then the rest is taken care of. When eternity comes, I'm in. And, you know, the rest, yeah, it'd be good if I did the right things, but doesn't really, it's not all that important because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. You see, it's so frustrating. Of course I'm born again. Of course I'm saved by grace and not by works. Of course. But you, like me, we are saved to do those good works. We are saved to do those good works, which he's prepared in advance for us to do. Look at verses 7 through 15 of Jeremiah 26. When the false priests and the self-proclaimed prophets and the people hear Jeremiah's message, they demand that he die. Why? Because he's preaching a message of impending judgment that clearly contradicts in their minds the fact that this is the city of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, surely He will abide among us forever. I can even find verses that say that. And all of that, of course, is true. It is the city. Jerusalem is the city of the Lord. The temple is where He will abide forever. But the Scripture also teaches, now hear me, because I think this is one thing that many of us don't really grasp as we should, as we think about the unfolding of God's covenant purposes. The Word of the Lord clearly teaches that His covenant is both conditional and unconditional. His, his, his covenant is conditional. How many times does God say to His covenant people, if you turn your back on me, I'll turn my back on you? That's condition. 120 years before Jeremiah's day, 120 years earlier than the events here in Jeremiah 26, the prophet Hosea spoke of a day when the Lord would call those to whom he had been merciful, he would call them no mercy. A day when those who he had called his people, he will label not my people. Why? Because they've gone a-whoring after other gods. 
God's covenants are conditional in relationship to particular people, in relationship to particular individuals. But at the same time, God's covenant promises are unconditional because he will always have a remnant of true believers, always. Because that same Hosea speaks of a day, now listen to this because he's talking about you. 120 years before Jeremiah 26, the prophet Hosea speaks of a day when the Lord will choose to be merciful to a people to whom he had not shown mercy and will call my people those who had not been his people. And here we are. Here we are. For if by grace through faith you've embraced Jesus as Savior, Lord, and King, what does the Scripture teach? Where do you now live? Do you know what the Scripture teaches about where you now live? Now you live, according to Hebrews 12, 22. Now you live atop Mount Zion, that is, within God's heavenly temple, that temple within the walls of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I know you can't see it. I know I can't touch it. But the Scripture says that's where you live now. The Lord has not forsaken his city. The Lord has not forsaken his temple. That's where you live now. Look at Jeremiah 26, verses 10 and 11. The so-called priests and prophets stand before the governing body of Judah, demanding that they put Jeremiah to death because he's spoken against Jerusalem. But then in verses 12 and 15, Jeremiah gives his defense. Basically, he says, I've been sent to you by the Lord. Repent or disaster will overtake you. You may do with me as you see fit, but I want you to know, if you shed my innocent blood, God will shed your blood. See, that's just not a warm and fuzzy message. That's not what itching ears want to hear. Now, in verse 16, the town officials, <laughs> it's very interesting to trace, by the way, the use of the phrase, all the people in this passage. Because look at verse 16, the town officials and all the people now decide that Jeremiah should not be put to death. Look back at verse 8. In verse 8, the people, all the people, stirred up by the false priests and the self-proclaimed prophets, demanded that Jeremiah die. Now, all the people side with the town officials and agree that Jeremiah should not be put to death. Is there anything more dangerous than a mob? Anything more dangerous than a mob who, like a ship on a stormy sea, are just tossed one way and then tossed another? Now, I've suggested to you that the town officials and the people now decide that Jeremiah's life should be spared because of what took place in verses 17 through 19. Look at verses 17 through 19. Here we have a wonderful wonderful, courageous moment. 
Verses 17 through 19, we're told that certain of the elders of the land boldly and courageously stand up and speak out and insist that Jeremiah had spoken in the name of the Lord his God. Now, obviously, these guys, these, these elders of the land are highly respected because, you know, despite all the turmoil going on around them, they're given an audience. They speak up, and they insist he should not die. He's only spoken to us in the name of the Lord. Why do they believe that to be true? Because they know the Scripture. They know. Look at verses 18 and 19. They know that Jeremiah's message is not new. Remember the hundreds of years of the Lord sending his prophets to urgently, uh, persistently sending his prophets to urgently plead with the people? Well, the elders know that Jeremiah's message is not new. Verses 18 and 19, the, the elders remind the people that Jeremiah's message is the same message proclaimed by the Lord's prophet Micah more than a hundred years earlier during the reign of godly King Hezekiah, 120 years earlier during the reign of godly King Hezekiah when Jerusalem found itself besieged by the Assyrians. Micah stood up and he said, repent or disaster will befall you. But disaster did not befall them 120 years earlier. Jerusalem was not overwhelmed by the Assyrians. Why? Because look at verse 18. Because even though Micah's message was a judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruin, and the mountain of the house will just be a wooded height. Disaster, that disaster did not come upon them 120 years earlier. Why? Because, because Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, instead of putting Micah to death for preaching against Jerusalem, and the but, you know, sadly, the history teaches us that as far as repentance was concerned as far as turning away from their wickedness and turning back to the Lord was concerned that they did not do. And here in Jeremiah, here in Jer Jeremiah 26, you know, the threat seems to be Egypt. But in just four short years, you know, the Babylonian army will overwhelm the Assyrian and Egyptian forces at Carchemish. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar will take control of the entire Middle East. And just four years later, four years after the prophecy of Jeremiah 26, people of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, will find themselves at the mercy of the Babylonians. They were cherry pickers. They sought a word from the Lord that was pleasing to hear. And if the Lord seemingly said things that were not quite so pleasant, 
they just ignored those words spoken by the Lord. I want you to hear this. The Lord promises no if, ands, buts, or maybes. Lord promises if you will confess your sin, if you will repent, if you will turn from them unto the Lord, if you will look to Him for grace and mercy, if you will embrace Jesus, the Savior, Lord, and King, if you will believe that Christ died on Calvary's cross, the sinless one bearing your sins, paying the penalty for your transgression, that He was buried, that He rose again from the dead, that He ascended back to the Father, and that one day He will come again to judge the heavens and the earth to judge the living and the dead. If you believe those things to be true, then you will live a blessed and eternal life. Because if you believe those things to be true, it will change everything. If you claim to believe those things to be true and it doesn't change anything or it just changes one or two little things that you really don't mind changing, you haven't believed the gospel. What does Paul teach us? He teaches us those who believe this gospel become what? They become a new creation. A new creation. You believe that gospel or don't you? To believe that gospel is to know the Lord's blessing, both now and forevermore. To refuse to heed that gospel, to ignore that gospel, is to be in danger of being cursed by God. I mean, how awful a message is that? It's so awful, we don't want to talk about it. Because surely the good, gracious, loving, merciful God would never do that, never mind the fact that He is also holy, perfectly righteous, and totally just. And that He says to us repeatedly, I will judge you according to your deeds. You go, wait, 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 preacher. I'm saved by grace. I'm not saved by works. Of course you're saved by grace and not by works. But if you are saved, there will be good works that are the evidence of the fact that you've been saved. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, by their fruit you will know those who are mine. That's what Jesus said. What am I pleading with you about? I'm pleading with you because the church, I've just come from General Assembly and I've written you a newsletter article a little bit about that and I'll write another newsletter article deals with that a little bit more. But, but once again, I'm just, I'm just so, so stunned by how little influence we have upon this culture that has gone raving mad and the madness just seems to be accelerating. 
And I, part, I believe that part of the, I do believe that part of the reason why the church has no influence is because the church is filled with people who say one thing with their mouth and evidence another thing with their lives, and it doesn't fool anyone. It doesn't fool anyone. Don't cherry pick, read the scriptures. Listen to the scriptures preached. Listen to the scriptures taught. And then go home and search the scriptures to see if the things that you have heard preached and taught are true. It is the word of God. It is the word of life. The Lord said to his people, I set before you the way of life, the way of death. I set before you blessing, I set before you cursing. Then he pleads with them, choose life. I plead with you in the name of the Lord God, choose life. Turn to Jesus. Embrace him as Savior and Lord, and if you have, then confess of whatever those sins are that you know now displease him. Turn once more and call upon him. Be overwhelmed with an urgency to live as his image bearer, to live as his image bearer, so that through you, through you, through the influence of your life on those immediately around you, and then perhaps because of those immediately around you, that influence going out, who knows how far, by the Lord giving you the strength, equipping, enabling, and empowering you, live as the Lord would have you live so that he might use you to turn this world right side up. Now, I started with silliness. This is, there's nothing silly about this. This is the gospel. This is both sides of the gospel. Both sides. Trying not to cherry pick. This is the whole kit and caboodle. By grace you're saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's not by works. You have nothing of which to boast and you are saved to do those good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Let's pray. So Lord, fill us with the wonder of your truth. Father, may we not just take lightly the fact that you have seen fit to preserve for us this, these histories that show us the outworking, the outworking of your covenant in the lives of people just like us. Father, may we learn so as not to repeat their mistakes, so we may we learn so as to please and honor you and by your grace prove to be a genuine blessing and of real benefit 
to those around us. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.